When John Austin wrote his classic, The Province of Jurisprudence Determined, in 1832, he famously posited that international law was not law properly so-called. And the reason for this, he suggested, was that the global order lacked a sovereign. Since he defined law as sovereign commands backed by sanction, it followed that international law could not be properly seen as law. Now, what Austin did not dwell upon, not much at any rate, was the role of institutions such as courts and notions such as responsibility, thank you, not in the domestic legal order, let alone in international law. Courts could turn customs into law, but that was pretty much all he said. And the reason why that was so was because they were empowered to do so by their sovereigns. Now, in the absence of a sovereign and the non-existence of international courts, international law to Austin was positive morality, as he famously put it, and only called law by inept analogy, set, as he put it, by general opinion. As he saw it 180 years ago, this denoted not so much the sovereign command, but rather that, and I'm quoting, an uncertain aggregate of persons regards a kind of conduct with a sentiment of aversion or liking. As a consequence, it is likely that some members of this uncertain aggregate will be displeased, this is quoting again, will be displeased with a party who shall pursue or not pursue conduct of that kind. And in consequence of that displeasure, it is likely that some party will visit the party provoking it with some evil or another, end of quote. In other words, international law formed mainly, it seems, a vocabulary of opprobrium, allowing states to voice their approval or disapproval with certain causes of action. The rules of international law could not be considered legal rules, but they could be used by states, perhaps others as well, to signal approval or disapproval. Now, it may seem eccentric to start a public lecture in 2012 by referring to the work of John Austin, written almost two centuries ago. Austin has been much criticized, of course, and is usually easily cast aside as an extreme positivist writing during the glory days of extreme positivism. And many international lawyers have seen fit to argue that Austin's view, if accurate in 1832, are no longer valid. International law, we all tend to think, can now properly be called law. For all the critique, though, there is something worth exploring in Austin, and that is the idea of international law as comprising a vocabulary of opprobrium. All the attention paid to the definition of law seems to have overshadowed Austin's point that international law, even if not law strictly speaking, nonetheless played a useful role in providing statesmen and others with a vocabulary to evaluate political action. This did not result in judicial enforcement. There were few, if any, international courts to begin with, after all. And it did not take place on the basis of sovereign commands. What was useful, nonetheless. It will be my contention that international law today may benefit from a similar approach. Focus less on its law-like qualities, the creation of ever more legal rules, ever more tribunals to enforce them, and more on the vocabulary of international law. In terms of this conference, this does not only mean that we're moving backward, it also signifies a move to substance, but does so with a twist. The substance I refer to is the substance of ethics, or 
as Austin might have continued to call it, positive morality. And then there's a second twist. The ethics I refer to is not duty-based, is not deontological, but erratic. I aim to sketch a virtue ethics for global governance. We'll see about that. As noted, Austin did not dismiss the usefulness of international law. He questioned whether it could be called law, properly speaking, but did not qualify it as singularly useless. Quite the opposite, it seems. When he discussed Mexico's independence struggle, he acknowledged that international law was often vague and imprecise, but hastened to add that the same applies to law proper. Again, quoting, law strictly so-called is not free from like difficulties, end of quote. Now this applies all the more so in the age of globalization and global governance, because as we shall so shortly see, our positive international law is not very adequate in dealing with global governance. Global governance presents us with foundational puzzles concerning both the doctrines of sources of international law and subjects of international law. Now, to be sure, some exercises of global governance can be captured by international law without stretching anyone's credibility, but quite a few cannot. Hence, a different vocabulary may be needed than current international law has to offer, or at least, maybe better, an additional vocabulary may be required to help us voice our approval or disapproval of what goes on in the world. Now, the tendency over the last century, in particular the last decade or two, has been to strengthen the dispute settlement mechanisms of international law. There are now well over 100 courts and tribunals functioning, international courts and tribunals, some permanent or semi-permanent, some temporary, ranging from the familiar International Court of Justice and European Court of Human Rights to relative newcomers, such as the Tribunal on the Law of the Sea, ranging from staff tribunals at international organizations to criminal tribunals, ranging from the compliance procedures known to environmental law to investment arbitration panels. And yet, for all this judicial activity, there are still many relevant activities that we can't seem to get a handle on. What I hope to do over the next half hour, 40 minutes or so, is to discuss a possible way for expanding the vocabulary of evaluation at the service of international lawyers. I will argue that our current vocabulary is insufficient to deal with many exercises of global governance, not all, but many, and that if we think of international law not so much as law properly so-called, but as a vocabulary for voicing approval and disapproval of acts of public power, there might be merit in resorting to the Aristotelian tradition of virtue ethics. Doing so in New Zealand is particularly appropriate as many of the leading virtue ethicists are based either here or next door in Australia. Now let me start by sketching the problem. There are many exercises of global governance which affect people but which do not come squarely within the realm of international law. Global governance, of course, is a nebulous notion, difficult to identify, even more difficult to control, perhaps, but it seems reasonably clear that it exists in a way that goes beyond international law. In other words, there are manifestations of global governance beyond, say, the Kyoto Protocol or the latest WTO appellate body decision 
or the first judgment of the International Criminal Court, although these also can be seen as part of global governance. But global governance can be said to exist, for instance, when the Security Council imposes sanctions on individuals. Or, this is a personal gripe, as some of you may know, when Microsoft's operating system forces people to abandon their preferred word processing programs. <laughs> uh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Global governance exists when states and financial institutions are being downgraded, or more rarely perhaps upgraded, by credit rating agencies. It exists when states conclude large multilateral treaties, for instance, to combat organized crime. It exists when George W. Bush proclaims 9-11 to constitute an attack on America. It exists when the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision adopts a new set of guidelines. It exists when the WTO approves a waiver to limit the trade in blood diamonds. It exists when the UN and others decide not to intervene during the Rwandan genocide. And global governance exists when the OECD announces the results of the PISA tests. And more, 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 and more, of course, but this should suffice for present purposes. Of the nine examples I just gave you, only two can be seen as legally unproblematic, and even then, that is partly due to the way I frame them. The WTO has the authority to grant waivers under Article 9, Paragraph 3 of its treaty, and states can conclude multilateral treaties. Those two would seem to be relatively unproblematic. That's not to say they are completely unproblematic. There has been some debate, for instance, about the appropriateness of using the waiver procedure in the WTO to limit the trade in blood diamonds. And while states can conclude multilateral treaties, they do not always do so with great enthusiasm. And they cannot do so in order to violate Euskogan's norms itself, a difficult concept. Still, the remaining seven examples, and I hasten to add, obviously, that the list is far from exhaustive, all cause problems of a different and deeper kind. Security Council sanctions, as is well known, can be without limits. The discre discretion of the Security Council, after all, is often held to be unfettered. Microsoft, it of the word processing pro problems, falls outside international law altogether. Part of its activities can be controlled by antitrust law, but even then, Microsoft can still grow big and exercise enormous influence. The credit rating agencies exercise enormous influence, but few people know what they do, how they work, and how, if at all, international law can reach them. Coining a phrase such as attack on America has large implications, but is not governed by law. If talk, if earlier talk of an axis of evil could be considered hate speech, which is not very plausible to begin with, then a phrase like attack on America is far more neutral, yet explosive in its own right. The Basel Committee is not an actor under international law and its guidelines are not considered to be sources of international law. Non-intervention in, by the UN in Rwanda was morally indefensible, but more difficult to condemn in strict legal terms. Even if one holds there to be a duty to prevent genocide, then surely the UN was not the only culprit. 
The PISA rankings, PISA stands for Program of International Student Assessment, by the way, merely rank. They do not contain any explicit recommendation or guideline, yet exercise enormous influence. Now, these examples suggest that international law has difficulties in coming to control global governance along a variety of dimensions. And a cursory analysis reveals at least five fundamental problems. First, there's the actor problem. Not all actors exercising global governance fall within the recognized reach of international law. Now, international law has, roughly since the 1960s, aimed to expand that reach, but has fared markedly better in granting rights to non-state actors than in presenting them with obligations. Minorities, liberation movements, peoples, civil society organizations, industry organizations, and even companies all can claim certain rights under international law, but they cannot be said to be bound by international law in any unequivocal manner. And the standard solution to say that if state X is bound, then so too are entities within state X, is far too facile to be of much use. Hence, Microsoft can act with relative freedom, as can the credit rating agencies. <coughs> Second, then, there is the sources problem. International law traditionally recognizes acts of consent by states, and more recently by international organizations, as giving rise to legal obligations. But it has a hard time dealing with other manifestations of what the relevant actors may deem desirable. Normative utterances by industries, agreements between companies and other actors, guidelines agreed within networks, even commercial practices such as the Lex Mercatoria have a hard time being brought within the reach of classic sources doctrine. And to get back to the examples, the Basel guidelines would fit here nicely, or are a decent illustration of the problem I'm sketching. Third, there is the discretion problem. It was already noted that the Security Council's discretion under the UN Charter may be unlimited. Even if the Council is ex hypothesi controllable through law, the control may not add up to all that much. Because the law doesn't say all that much in the Charter. Part of the problem here, more general problem, is that the exercise of discretion makes control very difficult to begin with, and does so by definition. At best, one can check for manifest errors of judgment. The more discretion is allowed, the more difficult control becomes. And discretion is inevitable, if only because not everything can be micromanaged. Something similar applies where the law creates a power, but not a duty, as with the UN's inactivity in Rwanda. Even if there would be law applicable, it is by no means certain that the UN violated it. Fourth, there is what you might call the speech act problem. Words have ramifications and can have important normative implications. So much so that for some situations there is no language available that would not already carry an evaluation within it. Those of us who feel that Israel has built a wall through its territory already start from different premises than those of us who call it a security fence. Similarly, Calling 9-11 an attack on America frames the issue in a different way than calling it large-scale murder. 
And something similar applies in an odd sort of way to the PISA rankings, praising the virtues of Finnish and Japanese students in standardized tests carries the suggestion that the Finnish and Japanese educational models are worthy of emulation, even if that suggestion is never made explicit. And fifth, then, there is what you might call the accountability fragmentation issue. It is not so much the case that no, ac no accountability mechanisms exist at all. International organizations, for instance, are typically considered to be accountable to their member states, companies to their shareholders. But what is problematic is that those member states or shareholders have a different interest in holding the entity accountable than others may have. The call for accountability of the World Bank by the poor and dispossessed in Bangladesh or somewhere else is not likely to be satisfied by pointing out that the bank is accountable to the US Treasury or that the credit rating agencies exercise a form of control. Moreover, the various different constituencies may apply different sets of standards. The US Treasury is presumably keener on balanced accounts, whereas the poor and dispossessed may be more interested in seeing the World Bank adhere to economic and social rights. In short, global governance poses fundamental challenges to international law, challenges that cannot always be met by creating more rules or creating more tribunals. Whilst international law has grown out of the need to regulate relations between states, global governance is concerned, at least in part, with the exercise of public power. It therewith symbolizes something of the much-desired verticalization of international law, but does so only in part, leaving out the concomitant control. In yet other words, global governance makes international law look more like domestic law, there's a hierarchy, there is a wider variety of relevant actors, but without the centralization that makes accountability possible. Now, it has become a mainstay of political philosophy that public power needs to be kept in check. The days when it was okay for institutions to exercise public power without there being some form of control are long behind us. They disappeared with the demise of absolutism and the rise of democracy in one form or another. In international law, such control largely takes the form of responsibility regimes. The discipline has well developed the rules on the responsibility of states and the responsibility of international organizations, even arguably on the criminal responsibility of individuals. Now, the regimes on state responsibility and international organizational responsibility were developed along private law lines, state responsibility, international organization responsibility, are taught law writ large, to put it somewhat simplistically. They miss a public dimension. Those regimes take the form of positing that the relevant actors should behave in accordance with a set of given standards. If their behavior falls short, the actors may or will incur international responsibility. And in being structured this way, responsibility regimes are typically retrospective and deontological, the relevant actors having duties. They are supposed to follow objectively recognizable rules, for instance, rules laid down in treaties or rules that have been generally accepted as customary law. If they violate these rules, they commit an internationally wrongful act and can be held responsible. 
some tribunal or perhaps the court of public opinion may find that the actor concerned did not behave as it should and ought to restore the status quo ante or provide compensation or live with the shame of having been found in violation. Now, regardless of the complicated details of these regimes, think only of attribution, they are not, only, they are not unproblematic, sorry, even on this level of abstraction. Their retrospective nature, for instance, is somewhat unsatisfactory. A state can do wrong on Monday, pay compensation, and then do the same wrong on Tuesday. Clearly, this is not the intention behind the responsibility scheme, but it may be a strong side effect. It is no coincidence that the US found itself before the International Court on three different occasions in less than a decade for having failed, up to, having failed to live up to its obligations under the Consular Convention. And the possibility of paying compensation rather than withdrawing domestic wrongful measures is built in in the WTO's dispute settlement mechanism, even if, admittedly, compensation is posited as the lesser alternative. Likewise, excuse me, likewise, the underlying deontology is problematic for a variety of reasons, really. First, it is by no means clear which norms are binding on which actors. With states, that may not be too much of a problem, but it's decidedly less simple with international organizations who are typically parties to very few treaties and who cannot, without more, be said to be bound by all rules of customary international law. The International Court of Justice in 1980 somewhat enigmatically held that international organizations are bound by general international law. But that is quite possibly not the same as saying they are bound by rules of customary international law and may refer only to secondary rules, such as those of the law of treaties. Either way, it must be noted that the rules are not the same for everyone. Different actors are subject to different rules. And that still says nothing about whether companies, minorities, informal networks, etc., are in a position to violate international law. Second, more important for present purposes, rules even those of law properly so-called, are not always very certain in their contents, as John Austin already acknowledged. Modern jurisprudence teaches us that rules are inevitably under-exclusive and over-inclusive, and that rules often come with exceptions, prompting us to determine whether the rule applies or whether it is the exception that should apply. Rules can leave a lot of discretion and can even, in the fragmented global order, be in conflict with one another. Moreover, which rule is to be applied is also a matter of how an issue is framed. Many issues can be approached from radically different angles, leading to the possible application of radically different rules. A famous example concerns the AIDS crisis, which can be cast as a medical issue, a human rights issue, a trade and, a trade and intellectual property issue, or all of the above. In other words, and without dismissing rules altogether, it is useful to realize that not everything can be captured in rules. Now, international lawyers have, of course, started to realize this. And as a result, much attention is paid these days to a second order set of rules, the rules on interpretation, be it interpretation of treaties or interpretation of Security Council resolutions, etc. 
Again, though, without dismissing the utility of rules on interpretation, it seems reasonably clear that not too much can be expected of them. A focus on interpretation may shift the emphasis, therewith shifts the problem, but there's little to solve it. Moreover, it is arguably even a good thing if rules are a little bit open-ended, otherwise they become inflexible, they become, as Tom Frank once put it felicitously, idiot rules. Now, it might be useful then to come to a broader understanding of accountability, beyond international law's classic responsibility mechanisms, for, as noted, the law of responsibility has a hard time addressing many manifestations of global governance. The good news is that public administration scholars have identified, already a long time ago, that there are several ways in which exercises of public authority can possibly be kept in check. In a classic study on controlling bureaucracies, Judith Gruber identified five broad approaches. The first to her was what she called the participatory approach, advocating participation of shareholders, stakeholders, I should say, in decision-making processes as a form of controlling bureaucracies, controlling public power. Second, somewhat more moderate, there would be the clientele approach. Here, the idea is to ask the clients of public power, the recipients, whether or not their needs are served well, how things could possibly be improved. Third, there is what Gruber called the public interest approach. Policies that are overly geared to the interests of specific groups should be redirected, perhaps, to serve the general interest. And this would typically involve a greater role for politics and less discretion. Fourth, there is what Gruber referred to as the accountability approach, but what international lawyers would recognize as a responsibility approach, typically referring to codes, judicial review, and the like. Fifth, then, Gruber identified self-control as an approach relying on the bureaucrat's sense of professional responsibility or sense of personal fulfillment. And I guess phenomena such as corporate social responsibility come close enough. Long story short, there may be merit in realizing that judicial review, the creation of responsibility regimes, the creation of norms and tribunals to apply them, is not the only way to exercise control over public power. Indeed, somewhat hesitantly, there are signs visible in international law of some of the other approaches Gruber refers to. The participatory approach is at the heart of the Aarhus Convention on Public Participation in Environmental Decision-Making and also informs much of global administrative law. Self-control is visible in corporate social responsibility mechanisms, but also in the form of various inspection panels, auditing boards, and compliance officers acting within international organizations. Still, having said that, international law works mainly through what Gruber calls the accountability approach, and does so by upholding a narrow concept of accountability, usually referred to as responsibility. Now, those who study global governance for a living, mainly political scientists, have observed that a state-centric approach to global governance is bound to remain not very fruitful, if only because 
as we've already seen, much relevant activity is done by actors other than states. What is more so, it may well be that what matters is not so much the type of actor that participates in global governance or the type of instrument by which global governance takes place, but rather the character of relationships between governors and governed, as well as between governors. This may entail a lot of things. It may entail, for instance, that the legitimacy of global governance derives in part from institutional authority. Or it may entail that the legitimacy derives from recognized expertise. It may also entail, however, that exercises of global governance derive their legitimacy in part from the virtues of the decision makers. Take, for instance, Security Council sanctions. It may matter a great deal for our judgment, for our evaluation, whether Mr. X is placed on the blacklist because he looks suspicious, because he has a suspicious last name, because he has a cousin in Afghanistan, because someone proposed his blacklisting and no one objected, or whether the Security Council has a strong conviction that Mr. X is funding terrorist activities being based on weighing whatever evidence it has gathered and considered in an honest, open-minded manner. Something similar applies to the financial regulations set by the Basel Committee. It may matter a great deal for our evaluation whether these result from the desire of a handful of wealthy nations to keep their own wealth intact, or whether these stem from a serious, honest belief that they represent the best for the world at large. And likewise, the labeling of 9-11 as an attack on America feels more acceptable if we think that President Bush spoke out of a sense of empathy than if we would think that his main impulse stemmed from blind revenge or a desire to mobilize domestic political support. In short, my claim is that there is room, or even stronger, that it may well be necessary to complement the existing vocabulary of international law by an appeal to the character traits of those in the position to exercise public power. There is room and a need for thinking of international law as positive morality, in addition to its legal qualities, since otherwise much of global governance will remain unchecked. Now, how then to achieve this? How to operationalize virtue ethics and make it appropriate for the evaluation of manifestations of global governance? Perhaps the most appropriate way of doing so is to attach the relevant virtues to the professional roles of the relevant actors. This involves three steps. First, it demands an identification of the relevant professional roles in global governance. And without being comprehensive or exhaustive, at least a number of different professional roles can be identified. One can think of powerful statesmen. One can think of the leadership of international organizations. One can think of the leadership of civil society organizations. One can think of experts engaged in policy making or policy advice, be it at the Codex, Codex Elementarius Commission or in a capacity as UN Special Rapporteur. And one can think of the international judiciary. All those different roles to which different virtues may attach. Second, the relevant virtues must be identified. Here, obvious candidates would be virtues such as honesty, temperance, humility, charity, empathy, courage, and justice. Again, I have no claim here of being either comprehensive or exhaustive.
And third, then, the relevant virtues must be attached to the relevant professional roles. For while well, one would expect all positions of uh, all individuals, sorry, in positions of power generally to be honest, temperate, humble, etc., there may be roles where more of one and less of the other is appropriate. To provide an example from a completely different walk of life, a pediatrician can be allowed a little white lie when asked by a terminally ill child how long she still has to live. It would be a harsh doctor who would honestly reply, saying, you're going to be dead in six weeks. By contrast, the public auditor has no room for little white lies when asked about the financial health of a company or agency she is investigating. Now, all this may sound eccentric and hopelessly romantic, and perhaps it is. Perhaps it is about as eccentric and romantic as it was 30 years ago to ask people to separate their waste in order to help save the environment. Yet, there is some intuitive plausibility, and in fact, we do appeal to individual virtues on occasion. Examples are that judges are typically sworn in. They are expected to promise that they uphold a certain attitude, faithfulness to the Constitution, or whatever the particular formula may be. Likewise, the political leaders of states are often expected to make a pledge upon commencing their terms of office. We also draw up codes of ethics for professional roles. Nice example being formed by the draft code of conduct for UN special rapporteurs promulgated a few years ago. And clearly, as a footnote, the International Court was rather less than fully impressed with the way one of them had been conducting interviews as an advisory opinion in 1999 suggested. In the same vein, <coughs> Most observers would agree that the United Nations under Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld was a rather different entity than under, say, Kurt Waldheim, in ways that cannot be traced back to legal rules or institutional settings alone. Indeed, the prevailing opinion traces it back to Hammarskjöld's personal sense of ethics. He was a virtuous person aspiring to act virtuously in difficult circumstances. He would not, for instance, make promises to states if he expected that he could not keep those promises, even if making promises could have helped to nudge negotiations along in crisis situations. And this suggests that honesty is one virtue of relevance to the leadership of international organizations. Do not make promises you can't keep. Moral courage might be another virtue, having the courage to take unpopular decisions. Now, similar considerations may apply in other settings as well. UN special rapporteurs, for instance, or other experts, for that matter, should be humble, perhaps, not try to change the law by reporting on situations not covered by their mandate. It is one thing to capture new developments under an existing mandate. That seems acceptable in principle. But trying to stretch the legal framework so as to bring it in line with the special rapporteur's personal views would be a bit less virtuous. The international judiciary, likewise, should show some humility and temperance. Surely, in a way, this too is recognized. International courts and tribunals are not expected to make international law. They are expected to apply the law to the best of their ability and expected to resist the temptation to go much further than the settlement of disputes. We also expect our judges typically, 
typically, to be of high moral character, as Article 2 of the ICJ statute puts it. And we expect the judiciary to be impartial. Now this latter quality, impartiality, need not necessarily apply in the same way to other professional roles. Statesmen may be partial up to a point. So may experts confronted with gross human rights abuses, for instance, it will be difficult for a UN Special Rapporteur not to be partial. But the judiciary must be impartial, and this, as the great Lauterpacht already wrote in 1933, is a function of personality and of an elevated attitude of mind. His words, not mine. Now let me conclude. I have sketched how global governance has come to challenge international law, and how international law has a hard time coming up with answers. To the extent that global governance implies the exercise of public power, accountability forms a particular bottleneck, and the traditional responsibility regimes envisaged in international law are unlikely to be of much help. Much the same applies, for much the same reasons, to more recent innovations and suggestions, such as the global administrative law approach, or the putative constitutionalization of international law. Hence, it appears inescapable to pay attention not just to what the rules say, but also to the character traits of those making and applying the rules. This may not result in technically better rules or in more court cases, but it may have the benefit of broadening the vocabulary of international law and therewith allow us, the public at large, to come up with ways to either accept or reject some instances of global governance. If there is one lesson that John Austin taught us 180 years ago, but which we have collectively forgotten, it is the lesson that the effective evaluation of social and institutional practices need not necessarily take the form of law properly so-called. Positive morality, in his words, can play a role as well. While it would be fanciful to claim that Austin was thinking of virtue ethics, because he decidedly was not, more recently, philosophers have suggested that virtue ethics may help to come to a system of what some of them call intelligent accountability. Now, finally, at the end of the day, global governance is not merely the responsibility of the global governors. It is not merely the responsibility of statesmen, directors general of international organizations, the leadership of Amnesty International and Greenpeace, or of the international judiciary. All of us, as citizens have a stake in global governance. And it follows that all of us have a responsibility here. What matters then is not just that our governors act with virtue, but also that we evaluate them and correct them if and when necessary. Perhaps the most important aspect is civic virtue. The buck does not stop with the professional roles outlined above. Instead, as Hannah Arendt would say, all of us need to assume the responsibility to take care of our common world. That is easier said than done, of course, given the long-standing crisis in politics. If it is true that politics is in crisis because we have collectively lost our faith in our political leadership, then that leadership is the obvious place to start. Thank you.